I don't want to be a martyr. Nor I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. All right. We are we are going back to England, sort of. <laughs> and I say sort of because this is one of those things that just drives me crazy. Because it's it's confusing because I don't live there, I guess, and because it just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, and because the Middle Ages are confusing sometimes, and the things that come out of it make less sense. So, we are actually officially in 17th century Scotland. Now, re- realize that Scotland is a weird little political situation, so let me... Let me make sense of this because I had to write this down in a chart so I could make sense of this. So I'm going to give it to you so you can make sense of it, okay? There's England, which is part of Great Britain. So Great Britain is the island upon which England, Scotland, and Wales exist. Great Britain is then part of the United Kingdom, which is then England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, okay? The United Kingdom is then part of the British Isles, which includes Great Britain, Ireland, and the Isle of Man, even though Ireland is its own separate thing. Got it? Okay, good. (laughs) And with that, Scotland has its own history. It is part of the United Kingdom, but it has its own parliament. It had its own monarch until James, what is it, James the fourth james the fifth one of the jameses but be i think it's james the sixth is king of scotland who also becomes james the first of england and that's at the turn of the 17th century remember that at that point scotland is mostly presbyterian thank you john knox it is legally presbyterian England is, of course, by the 17th century, thoroughly Anglican. It is the Church of England. Remember, it's been on and off from Henry to to uh, Edward to Mary to Elizabeth. Well, once you get back to Elizabeth, you are Church of England, and you are also increasing the power of the monarchy. That is until the middle of the 17th century. You have the Bishops' Wars, that's 1639 and 1640. You have the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. You have the Glorious Revolution. You have battle lines between Scotland and Ireland and England. You have multiple English civil wars. You have the Cromwell Rebellion and Revolution. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. If you want to just like get lost in it, you can go read 4,000 books on the subject, and I am still convinced some of the timeline will not make any sense to you. Now, I point that all out because by the time you get to the middle of the 17th century, England and Scotland are basically united under the United Kingdom. Now, the problem with that for Scotland is you have Anglican Church of England, England, and you have Presbyterian Scotland trying to unite under a United Kingdom. And at this point in history, the idea that you would have multiple official religions in a kingdom is just, no, that's that's not a thing. That is not happening. You could argue that they knew more than we did, but it's just not a thing. So, In 1660, this is at the restoration of the monarchy, I believe that's the Stuart monarchy being reinstalled, covenanters are declared illegal. And you're going, wait a minute, you skipped a step. What in tarnation is a covenanter? Well, 
Covenanters are the mainline Presbyterians in Scotland who are in opposition to the Church of England. Now, they're illegal as of 1660, but they do not go away. If you've learned nothing else from our, you know, march through history during this time, convinced Christians don't just disappear because you tell them to go home and be quiet. They're convinced Christians. Protestantism in Scotland at this point goes back to the beginnings of the Reformation. Again, Knox brings um, Presbyterianism to Scotland, and Presbyterianism at that point is old-school Calvinism. John Knox studies under Calvin at Geneva, brings that as a missionary back to Scotland. The great quote from Knox as he's sailing back into Scotland is, Give me Scotland, lest I die. So, I mean, dude was serious. Scotland was serious about its Presbyterianism for multiple reasons. One, it's a convinced theological position. That's one. Two, it's not British, or English in this case. That's that's believe it or not part of it. They're they're just not English, and they're not going to take English ideas or English religion for that matter. So that gives you a really quick rundown of the backdrop of what we have today, which is the Wigtown Martyrs. Who are the Wigtown Martyrs? They are Margaret Wilson and Margaret McLaughlin. And I'm sure there's a good Scottish way to say McLaughlin that I'm just not going to try to kill myself with. <coughs> We are going to focus in on one Margaret Wilson, who was born in southwest Scotland. You want to talk about dividing families here. Her parents are good Episcopalians. Her brothers are Presbyterians. Remember, Episcopalians are Anglicans. <laughs> this is where it just gets so confusing. Nowadays, nowadays, Episcopalians typically only refer to the Anglican communion in the outside of England. Most most people in England just call themselves members of the Church of England. But Episcopalian at this point is kind of a crossover word. <clears throat> the Covenanters, the Presbyterians of Scotland, are attending meetings in secret. They're going off into the hills and meeting in secret. Now realize, you're an illegal group. And the reason you're an illegal group is, is something we've talked about before going back into the Middle Ages. If you're a covenanter, you refuse to swear allegiance to the king and follow the Book of Common Prayer. To fail to follow the king's religion is to fail to follow the king. To fail to swear oath of allegiance to the king is treason. So even though you have no ill will, failure to prove you have no ill will by swearing an oath of allegiance is treasonous in and of itself, and therefore you can die. Now, I tell you that because there are conflicting reports and stories on how this goes down. There's some discussion that the Wilson family is aiding Presbyterians who are fighting against the English. <sighs> Don't know how much you can get off of that. Again, sometimes history is just a, a funky little thing. The other version of the story has the Wilson sisters, which is Margaret and her younger sister, Agnes. I do not have an age for the younger sister. We know Margaret is about 17 at this time. The younger sister go to visit Margaret McLaughlin, which I'm just going to call Wilson and McLaughlin from this point forward. It makes my life simpler. At which point, Margaret and Agnes are arrested and thrown into what's known as the Thieves' Hole, which I can't find good information on, but apparently it's a, it's, it's a nasty little prison, which... You know, 17th century prisons aren't probably real good anyway, but to get a reputation as, like, the really bad prison, you probably have to be, you know, pretty bad. You throw a 17-year-old girl and your little sister in there, it's probably not a, not a good thing what's going on. McLaughlin is also arrested on the following Sunday. She's thrown in prison as well. Now, here begins the weird back and forth. They're apparently 
sentenced to be flogged. They are transferred from one prison to another. They're left there for months. And at some point, they get convicted of treason, and they're going to be executed. And yes, that's like really quick, but there's just it's it's convoluted to say the least. Now, at some point after their conviction, they are actually given a reprieve from the Privy Council. That is the king's closest advisors. This would include um, your Secretary of State, your your Archbishop of Canterbury, who's the head of the Church of England, um, your advisory bishops for the Church of England. They are Wilson and McLaughlin are given. A reprieve. They're not. It's not exactly a pardon, but they're not going to be executed for this. The king has no desire to execute them for this. It's it's not worth the trouble. Now you're wondering what happened to little Agnes. Well, she got out of prison due to her age and her father's ability to pay for her. She is released, basically figuring she's young enough. She's not going to cause any problems. Who knows? Now. This leaves Margaret Wilson and Margaret McLaughlin in prison, set to be executed, but they've been granted reprieve. But for some odd reason, the local officials do not wish to follow this reprieve. And again, this is part of a part and parcel of the day. You're rewarded for being an ambitious slot, and being zealous for the law, even if you've been told not to, is never really punished or looked down on in this world. So they continue on with it. Now, this is where it just gets terrible. The execution method is drowning. Now, we've seen that before in history. Um, Balthazar Hubmeyer was drowned. What they would typically do is sew you into a sack and throw you into the river, you know, with weights in your bag so you would sink to the bottom, and that way they don't have to worry about it. <sighs> Apparently, the Scots do things a little rougher. I mean, the Scots take take Wilson and McLaughlin to the local causeway. It's called a Firth, because Firth Rivers and things like that. It's the Solway Firth. And it's a tidal river. So at low tide, they are taken out into the area that is traversable. Stakes are driven into the ground. They are tied to the stakes so that they are, the top of the stake is now below the high tide line. And they wait. And they wait. Crowds gather. They've also done this, by the way, with McLaughlin closer to the sea than Wilson. McLaughlin is 63 years old. They're not really worried about her. They're really trying to get Margaret Wilson to recant. So they figure when she sees the older woman drown, she will recant. <sighs> McLaughlin drowns probably several hours before Wilson does. They've placed her far enough ahead. Multiple times, people in boats as the tide comes in, row out to Wilson to see if she will recant, and each time she refuses. She was given a Bible, and apparently her hands are loose enough that she can open it to read from it, and she reads from the Psalms and reads from Romans 8, quoting out that neither height nor depth will separate you from the love of Christ. At one point, the water gets up to about neck and chin high to where the waves are, you know, actually swamping her head on occasion, and they pull her up off the stake to offer her the chance to recant, and all she's got to do is pray for the king and swear allegiance. She offers prayer to the, for the king. Not two, four. She offers prayer for the king, for his self, for the salvation of his souls, and for the salvation of these men. But she will not swear the oath, upon which point they shove her back on the pole and row back to shore. Within a few moments, the tide has come fully in, and she is seen no more. Her final quote, I will not swear allegiance to an earthly king. I am one of God's children, and I will not take a sinful oath. 
Now, I'm not going to make an argument one way or another for whether or not the oath was sinful. I'm not going to make the argument whether or not you can take an oath or not. You have to decide that with your own conscience. However, I would encourage you to be steadfast once you have made a decision, because when the world demands her love and her loyalty, she demands love and loyalty from all. And while you may not be forced to swear oath to a king, you are still being asked day by day to swear allegiance to a culture and a world that is antithetical to who Christ is. And remember, Christian, that as you stand in Christ, you will be strengthened to stand against the world. You will be strengthened to have faith unto the end, because that is what God has promised. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.